Texas Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, Facebook digs in its heels on political ads and the next big streaming service. But first, Carlos Ghosn unboxed. So lots of big name CEOs are known to have helped their companies escape from dire situations, but none has physically had to smuggle themselves out of a country in order to avoid local authorities. Well, until last month, when former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn escaped Japan, where he'd been arrested in late 2018 for alleged financial misconduct, including underreporting of compensation and personal use of company assets, basically commingling personal and company funds. Now, Ghosn, who at the time was under house arrest and had his passports confiscated, stuffed himself into a box with a bunch of air holes on the bottom, which associates then secretly got onto a private jet in Osaka, which then flew to Ghosn's native Lebanon, which does not have an extradition treaty with Japan. Ghosn then huddled for over a week with family before publicly emerging yesterday in a press conference that went on for over two hours. Now, beyond the headline-making tone-deaf comparison of his situation to the attack on Pearl Harbor, Ghosn also said this. I've been into many Mission Impossible. When I went in Japan in 1999, everybody told me, you know, it's impossible. You're not going to be able to make it. Who are you? You don't speak Japanese. You're coming from France. You're coming from Rono. Nobody knows that. And you know the story. I don't consider that now I'm in a situation where I cannot do anything. I can do a lot. And I'm going to clear my name. Now, the bottom line here is that Ghosn is an international fugitive businessman living in plain sight. He also doesn't seem like the sort who wants to retire to the Lebanese countryside anytime soon, which means that his escape story is far from over. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with New York Times reporter Vivian Yi, who was in Beirut yesterday for Ghosn's press conference. But first, this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique Smart Brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the ProRata podcast. We're joined now by Vivian Yi, an international correspondent with The New York Times. Can we just start with the legal piece here? There's no extradition agreement between Japan and Lebanon, but there is kind of a financial relationship between these two countries, correct? That's right. Japan does give Lebanon millions of dollars in aid annually, and they help Lebanon kind of cope with the very large population of Syrian refugees who have crossed into Lebanon since the civil war in Syria started in 2011. That said, there are many, many countries who donate far more to Lebanon, and so it's not as if Japan has great leverage here. Is there a sense that, well, I guess a twofold sense, one, that Japan will request extradition, which I don't think it's formally done yet, and then And secondarily, is there any belief inside of Lebanon that the country would actually comply and turn Carlos Ghosn over? Well, all of that is a little bit murky at the moment. Japan hasn't signaled what it intends to do. Ultimately, Lebanon has proposed that Japan try to pursue charges against Ghosn here in Lebanon, but it seems like it's pretty unlikely for Japan to do that, given that it's a sovereign nation that has far more trust in its own justice system than in Lebanon's. We don't know if it will formally request extradition. It certainly could. And then I assume there would have to be diplomacy at the highest levels about that. But at the moment, it seems like a lot of people in Lebanon are on Carlos Ghosn's side. When you say a lot of people in 
webinar. Carlos, go inside. He is kind of a business hero there locally, but there have been anti-government protests kind of talking, basically folks complaining about corruption. Is it possible that the Lebanese government would turn Gon over to basically say, you know, we're not corrupt? Or are those people protesting also happen to be on Carlos Gon's side? Well, it depends who you talk to. I mean, he clearly has friends in high places. We have confirmed that he met with the president and to other top officials basically as soon as he got to Lebanon from Japan. And so that's pretty telling. The president has since denied that this meeting ever took place because that would be awkward for Lebanon, the world stage. But the fact is he definitely is well-connected and it doesn't seem likely given Lebanon's efforts over the past year to lobby for him on his behalf in Japan, it doesn't seem likely that they would just turn him over like that. The anti-government protests are definitely a huge force to be reckoned with. They've toppled the Lebanese prime minister so far, and we don't know what the kind of far-reaching effects of it will be. And if you talk to some of those people, they say, okay, great, you know, add another thief to the list of corrupt <laughs> Lebanese businessmen, basically. But on the other hand, Lebanon is in such a deep economic hole at the moment that Honestly, some people are kind of looking for saviors wherever they can, and, and there's this sort of, well, it's it's half a joke, but you sense that there's a serious undercurrent to it where people are saying, well, maybe we should appoint Carlos Ghosn head of the central bank or finance minister or something because we're that desperate. Well, he's proven he can get himself, he can get at least something out, out of tricky situations. Let me ask about this press conference yesterday. We were going to do the show yesterday about this, didn't, because we assumed the press conference would be 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and it was well over two hours. Your gut take when it was over, did he help himself? And if so, with what audience? He definitely put on an impressive performance in that he didn't seem cowed at all. He was completely confident. He ranged across four different languages and five, if you count a few words of Japanese sprinkled in there. And yeah, he seemed to have no intention of backing down. Was it effective or would it have been better if he had basically had a fairly short prepared statement, taken a couple questions from reporters and gotten out of there and kind of had a much more, call it a, if not narrow, just a more concise, easily digestible message. So tell me I'm wrong about this. To me, it read like rambling. He definitely got into the weeds with his legal defense. I mean, it, it sort of felt like he had been stewing about these details and about these documents that he said he had and about the details of his case. He'd been stewing about it, you know, while sitting at home or in prison for, for more than a year. And now is you know, here was finally his chance to kind of unveil that thinking to the world and prove himself to the world. I wouldn't say that people necessarily would have come out of this convinced of his innocence, but he definitely has struck a confident pose here. Is it your opinion, you know, when you look at the charges, he, he the one thing he hasn't kind of directly addressed either in the press conference or in a subsequent interview with CNBC is this issue or this allegation of commingling of personal and business funds at Nissan. Is it your opinion that Ghosn truly is arguing that the charges themselves are bogus or is he more arguing there's some legitimacy to them, but this is really a small deal. And Japanese authorities have blown what in the U.S. would be a slap or in a lot of countries would be a small slap on the wrist into, you know, a national offense. I think he's taking the pose of I'm totally innocent. This is all made up, totally overblown. But, yeah, when it comes to kind of using company funds for personal expenses, 
He has all kinds of defenses. Take your pick from, oh, you know, the administrator of Versailles offered me the property for this fancy party and it was really for company purposes. So he has all kinds of explanations. And I think, yeah, he would argue that it's absolutely unwarranted. He did nothing wrong. Does it ultimately matter now, right? He's If there's no extradition and he stays in Lebanon or maybe even travels to France where he has uh, a passport to and there's not an extradition treaty there, or he talked about Brazil also, ultimately this thing's not going to probably get resolved with him in absentia or even if it does, it doesn't matter if he's not in Japan. Does this basically become Japanese prosecutors versus Carlos Ghosn? They both put out their stories and that's the end of it because we won't get actual adjudication that if there's a sentence, he has to serve any time? It could easily be read that way, that it's sort of they're at a stalemate and he's kind of won. But on the other hand, he is still facing some legal trouble. France is still investigating this party at Versailles. He's barred for 10 years due to a civil settlement in the U.S. from being a director of any kind of publicly traded companies. So he certainly wouldn't go back to being any kind of global CEO ever again. So the question is, if he is content to sit in Lebanon with friends and family and, you know, tend to his winery business and hang out with his wife, then sure, fine. He's probably good to go. That sounds all much better than sitting in a box on a plane. There are worse lives than being a multimillionaire with a wine estate. Yes, definitely better than Japanese jail. But keep in mind, Lebanon's really small. He's still clearly a, you know, a a guy who's full of vitality and ambition and drive. And so, you know, if he wants to have any kind of future like the one he once imagined, this is pretty constricted. But from a legal standpoint, it's hard to say. He doesn't seem to be in immediate danger of, of going to jail. No, definitely not. But will he be able to travel the way he's used to? Will he even be able to go back to France? That's an open question. Vivian Yi, international correspondent with the New York Times, calling us from Lebanon. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. My final two, right after this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to Get Smarter Faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Facebook, which yesterday reiterated that it will not police political ads for obvious falsehoods. Now, the company did unveil several small changes, uh, like allowing consumers to block political ads from their news feeds. But candidates can rest assured that they not only can lie, but can also continue to target those lies to specific audiences. And given the record amounts that campaigns are spending on Facebook this election cycle, this development is absolutely certain to end with two things. First, a less informed public, and two, a richer Facebook. And finally, a new mobile video streaming service called Quibi unveiled some new technology yesterday at CES in Las Vegas, which lets users seamlessly switch their phones between horizontal and vertical views. In other words, you can flip your phone over and not only do you get to see the same content without a stop, you actually get a new perspective. It's a kind of cool thing, not a killer differentiator, but kind of cool. So if you don't know Quibi, it's the company co-founded by former Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg and former Hewlett Packard and eBay CEO Meg Whitman. And it's hired lots of big name directors to produce short form shows. Why it matters isn't so much because it will fight for your attention dollars with Netflix and Disney Plus, but rather because it has raised over $1 billion from big movie studios who view it as a mobile video alternative to Google and Facebook, basically a way to distribute their content if the mega players refuse to do so in the future. Call it Hollywood's version of a hedge. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great national static electricity day. And we'll be back on Monday with another Pro Rata podcast.